Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. Happy New Year. As we begin this year, I'm going to kick off a sermon series called 2020 Vision. I kind of laugh because it's like every pastor should preach that. It's like such a no-brainer, right? I mean, 2020 vision. Who wouldn't think of preaching a, a sermon like that? But I really believe that the vision that God has for us, not only for this church, but for you individually and your families, um, your marriages, is going to come to fruition this year. And I believe by His Spirit and His Word being preached that many people are going to come to Christ through your ministry and in your family. And we claim that in the name of Jesus. You know, if you know anyone who's wandered off and is a prodigal or anything, they're coming back. Because this is the year. Jesus is coming back soon, right? So the Bible says. It's been 2,000 years since he ascended. So we trust that he's coming back. And he wants no one to perish. And he gives everyone an opportunity. So that's what I would long for. We come to the end of this year and we'll say our partnership has doubled in this church. We've had at least 30 baptisms, and all the prodigals have come home in Jesus' name, right? Okay, so we're talking about vision today. Anybody like Disneyland? Walt Disney, I always admire Walt Disney. I think I told you that before. He has such an incredible vision. I mean, think about it. Have you ever had a, a, like an idea, and then you go, that'll never work? Can you imagine like staying up at night going, I picture this place that had all these lands and rides and like fairies flying in the air and, and, and an electrical parade, you know, and all this stuff. Who thinks of this? But who actually follows through with it, right? So Walt Disney, he died before Disney World was opened. And somebody turned to his wife and said, um, you know, it's a shame that Walt is not here to see this. And, and she said, no, no, that's foolish. He did see it or it wouldn't have happened. You know, that's vision. And in our families, we need to have vision. Leadership is casting vision. So that's why I'm beginning this sermon series called 2020 Vision. The Bible says in Proverbs 29:18, read it with me. Where there is no vision, the people perish. So what does that mean? Well, if you look at the Hebrew words, vision and perish. Vision means basically divine revelation from God. How many people need divine revelation from God? And we have it. It's all in here. God has given us vision, and the word perish could mean out of control or running wild. So it literally could read this way, where there is no divine revelation, the people run wild. And isn't that what happened to Israel? As we looked in Exodus, that they were not following the Lord and they're just running around worshiping golden calf, you know? So where there's no divine revelation, the people run wild. That's why it's so important to preach the word of God and receive it as truth. So divine revelation is the word of God. And when the word of God is not preached, when the word of God is not taught, people run wild. They perish. 
You see this in your family. You see it in your church. You see it in the world today. How many people in the world today need to have divine revelation from God so that they can turn around, repent, and come back to the Lord? See, 2020 vision is not just about God's vision for this church. I believe it's God's vision for you and me and our families and our marriages. So we're going to look at four areas of divine revelation over the next four weeks. Today, we're going to talk about grow. We're going to talk about how the church can grow and how you can grow. Then we're going to talk about save, the vision of salvations. The vision of salvation, not only for people that you know, that the church will grow and will have at least 30 baptisms. What did Jesus say? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send more workers into the field. And then we're going to talk about restore. We're going to talk about how God wants to restore our families and restore our marriages and restore communities and restore people. And then the last Sunday month, we're going to talk about enter. We're going to talk about God's vision to enter the land that he has for us. I really believe the land is already there. We just need to go and occupy it, right? So will you believe these things with me and trust God? And let's not put any limitations on God. Can we begin today to say this? God can do whatever he wants. Do you believe that? I do too. So today we're going to look at the earliest documentation of the church. We're going to look at five qualities of a growing church. In Acts 2.47, it says, The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So how does a church grow? First, we can't force anything to grow, right? We can't force anything to grow. I mean, I wish I was, you know, at least 5'10". <laughs> when I was a kid... I was in the doctor's office as a, a teenager, and I was actually the tallest one in my class. But I stopped growing at 12. It's a problem. They said, oh, yeah, he's so tall. He's going to be at least 5'10". He's a liar, that doctor. He lied to me. I mean, I think I topped off at 5'7", and I'm currently shrinking. So uh, probably 5'5 five, five and a half right now, you know, and uh, wear smaller shirts. I don't know. But growth can't be forced. It can't be forced, but it can be nurtured. You know, so that's why Paul said, 1 Corinthians, he said, I planted, Paul says, I planted, Apollos, his co-laborer in Christ, watered. Those two are our part, but what does it say after that? But God was causing the growth. But here's the thing, in faith, we need to plant and water, plant and water, plant and water, and trust God for the growth. So we're going to look at five qualities of a growing church. So in your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look through those. Now remember, this is the earliest documentation of the church that had just started. And the first quality of a growing church is unity. The first quality of a growing church is unity. So in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to them, him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So now before we go on, let me give you a backdrop of what's going on up to this point. Now we know Jesus has died on the cross. He's resurrected and he's ascended to heaven. Where is he? He's seated at 
the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? Interceding on our behalf. But before he ascends, he commands his disciples in Acts chapter 1, it's documented that he says, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive what? The promised power that I promised you. What is that power? Who is that power? The Holy Spirit. Now stop for a moment. Does that mean that the disciples had not received the Holy Spirit yet? Well, we can look at John chapter 20. This is after he died and resurrected. And he walks into the room where the disciples are. And he breathes on them and says to them what? Receive the Holy Spirit. So apparently, the apostles had received the Holy Spirit. But what had they not received yet? The power of the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was not when the disciples received the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was when they received the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and be what? Witnesses of Jesus. Now, we have received the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. We just might not be employing the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, remember the documentation of this, as the power came upon them like tongues of fire. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus tell them, just wait. Wait till you receive my power. And in three verses later, in verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. What does a witness do? Testify, right, to what they know and see, both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it was a few days later that the disciples are in the upper room praying. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, appears like tongues of fire, and they began to speak in other tongues or other languages. Now, maybe this is what John the Baptist meant when he said this. He said, John said to them, I baptize you with water. So this is way before this thing that happened in Acts. I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Now, it's interesting Because Mark's account of the gospel, which is the earliest account, does not include the fire in this description. It just says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's because Matthew and Luke, their gospel came later, and they were talking to people who had experienced this and been there, and so they added the fire part. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this incredible sermon, and then how many people come to Christ that day? 3,000 souls says 3,000 souls were added to the church in one day. And I like that it says souls, because I'm not against altar calls. I love altar calls. I'm not against, you know, checking boxes on cards. I love that. I mean, that's a way of documenting things. But that doesn't necessarily mean someone got saved, right? The only way someone gets saved is if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It doesn't say if you come down the aisle at the church or if your mother and father were Christians or, you know, whatever. It says you have to believe and basically you have to trust what Jesus says is true about himself and about you. And you got to believe in him. 
and then confess him as your Lord. And many people do that through baptism in the water. So 3,000 souls were added that day. So we're looking here at the earliest church documentation that we have. So can't we learn from this? We should look at this. We shouldn't say that, you know, new ways of trying to grow a church aren't bad. I mean, I've been to many church growth conferences, and you can learn stuff. But let's learn from God's Word how the church grew at the beginning. Well, we first of all, we heard there was a sermon preached, right? So that's really important. But here's how it starts off in verse 32. When the congregation is gathered, it says, And the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul. Circle that. One heart and soul. That's important. By the way, the word congregation, it's really not saying it's a congregation. It's not saying it's the church per se, because the word congregation can mean just a multitude of people, an assembly. Is a multitude automatically have unity? We can look at our country. We're called the United States of America. We're not united, right? We have to talk about this. What is it that causes us to have unity? I mean, Hitler had an army that looked, dressed, and marched exactly the same. Did they have unity? They might have had uniformity, but that doesn't mean they had unity. The way people dress and march and walk together does not mean that you have spiritual unity. So this is why the next part of that sentence is extremely important. The congregation of those who what? Believed were of one heart and soul. Believed in who? Jesus and His Word. You can't have unity with unbelievers. You can have friendship. I have friends that aren't believers. I want them to be believers, but I don't have unity with them. I have a friendship. Because Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he goes on. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Over time, the church has less unity because Jesus spoke that there would actually be wheat and shaft together. So I hope everyone in here is a believer. You can have people who aren't believers sitting in a church building. That doesn't make you have unity and partnership. And in fact, this is why denominations were formed. I don't have anything against denominations per se, because denominations were formed to try and keep the unity that they believed was important. So, for instance, they have guidelines, they have policies, but the church in Acts 4 is the purest model of unity. See, we look at that church, and then we have to realize that a couple thousand years have passed. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, came into existence when the Empire of Rome, his name was Constantine, and it was in about 350 A.D. or something. And he testified that he got saved, which was awesome. Because imagine, you're a believer being persecuted, killed, tortured, burnt at the cross because you're a believer in Jesus Christ because Rome hated you. And which, by the way, Rome signifies the world. So the world hates you. 
because you profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Constantine becomes a believer, and at first it's like, wow, we don't have to be in fear of our life. But what happened, it became a state church. So in other words, the government ran the church, basically. And then over time, they had popes and different people, but it started out with the government of Rome indoctrinating this church. That pulled it away a lot from what happened with the early church because in the Roman Catholic Church, when it came into existence, they assigned people as priests. And they were the ones that did all the work, and the other people just sat there. And then they would pay for their grace, you know, over time. You got to pay this, you got to do it. If you want forgiveness of sins. So it became totally unbiblical, a lot of it. Well, then you had denominations come back, in the Reformation particularly. Martin Luther's like, he's a monk, right? Martin Luther, he's like, this is not right. I just read the Bible. And there's a lot of things you're not doing that are biblical. So I'm going to hang 95 things of those things on your church door. Talk about risk. So that became the Lutheran denomination. Then you had the others, you know, Calvin with the Protestants. So the Protestants, which, by the way, if you're not Roman Catholic, you would kind of be a Protestant. That's where that word comes from. I don't know why I'm going off in this history lesson. But it's important because we look at the early church and none of that was happening. It was organic. It was just, hey, I love you. We love each other. We love Christ. And we have unity, biblical unity, because we're believers. Notice what it says. Paul says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? So at the gate, we do have something called partnership. It's our word for membership. It makes up our fellowship. And we have a class that we invite prospective partners to come to to hear our beliefs, to see it in writing, look at our guidelines, look at our policies, and then make a decision, hopefully, if we're all in agreement, to join as a partner in partnership. Now, in order to have unity, we have to be of one heart and one soul. That means that we have one heart for Christ. We're in unity that way. But we're also in unity with the other believers in the fellowship. So if you don't have a local church, I'd love for you to be a part of this church. But everyone should be a part of a family, a local family of believers, because that's where we have the true fellowship with one another. Unity is the really important, and all the rest of them can kind of fit under unity, but I hope you see that unity is not just, you know, hey, we're friends. Unity is like you have the same beliefs and the same values. So the next thing that the early church exhibited is power. Unity and then power. We see here in verse 33, it says, and with great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. So here, the word grace, you know, we sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Sing with me. That saved a wretch like me. Okay, raise your hand if you're a wretch that got saved. (laughs) Everyone should, yeah. So we sing that, and it's true. Does grace just stop there? Like, oh, I'm saved. Does grace go beyond salvation to like 
the power to live? In fact, in Acts 6, 8, we read, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs. Stephen was saved, but the grace of God is the power to do great things. I love what Dallas Willard says. The true saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. We should be burning grace all the time because there's enough grace for any situation you're in and anything you need. God's grace is sufficient. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony. Who is the source of this great power? The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And what were they doing with God's power? Are they just keeping it to themselves? They were sharing testimony. So we shouldn't waste grace. We should put it in use. And here's three things. You might want to write this down. His grace is given for the following three reasons. First, God's grace is given so that we can live. To live. The power to live. In fact, Paul writes, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He goes on, he says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. And God says that he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the who? Humble. So when we are humble, and when we're not being proud, and we're letting God work through us and in us, we have that power working in us and through us. Next, to serve. God's grace is given for us to serve. Paul writes in Ephesians, of this gospel, I was made a minister. What does a minister do? Sir, yeah, ministry, servants. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And in Romans, he writes, since we have gifts that differ, he's talking of spiritual gifts, according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So we shouldn't waste God's power, we should be exercising and building those spiritual muscles. Then the third thing that God's grace is for is to share, to share the gospel. And that's why it says that with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes in Ephesians 3, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to what? Preach to the Gentiles. Now, Who should be the subject of your testimony? I love to hear the testimony. It should be including your story. But if you want to experience the power of God's grace, you testify about the risen Lord Jesus. And you include that in your testimony. Some people say to me, yeah, you know, people can tell I'm a Christian by, I try to be a good person. You know, I try to, help people or or this. But you know what? There's good people and there's people who help people who are not saved. The difference is that you testify about Jesus and what he has done in your life. That's the difference. So when you share a testimony, that's where the power comes from. Next, this church showed sacrifice, equal sacrifice. And I think, again, all these qualities can fit under unity. Now, when there's not equal sacrifice, it's like when you're rowing, and when there's not equal sacrifice, when there's not unity, you're rowing against each other, 
you're sweating and exerting all this energy to row against someone else, you're supposed to be going the same direction. And you can imagine how this plays out in marriages, in families. So that's one type of rowing when there's not equal sacrifice. It's hard. It's like, come on, we, we need to go in the right direction. We need to all be going in the same direction. But then there's another type of rowing, which is rowing alone. The church fellowship is exactly that. It's common. We should be able to go to you and go, hey, I need help with this. And you jump in, right? Or you come to me and go, hey, I really need some prayer or I need help. Yeah, we jump in. That's the sign of a healthy church. So when each partner is sacrificing according to God's word equally, then the church will be healthy and grow. If not, the church suffers. So here's what it goes on. It says, for there was not a needy person among them. So if all the partners are rowing together, there will be no needy person because the church will have all the resources it needs to take care of the needy people, which includes widows and orphans and people like this. That's when everyone is in the game, when everyone is equally sacrificing. Now, here's an incredible thing that happened. Imagine this. Imagine this. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Wow! Can you imagine how much money and financial resources the church had? They sold their houses and they brought it to the community and the church. And the community outside the church took notice. It's like, what the heck? What are they doing? That's not right. You don't sell your stuff and like give it to everybody else. This, ladies and gentlemen, is biblical socialism. It's biblical communism. And here's the difference between biblical communism and socialism and unbiblical. Okay? First, the resources were given, not taken. They brought, they brought it. No one forced them. No one should force you to bring your tithe. No one should force you to give to the needy, to give to your church and to give to those who are on mission and those kind of things. You should give. The next thing that separates this type of communism from unbiblical is that it was run by the church, not the government. They brought the money to the elders. The third thing that separates this type of communism for unbiblical is this was theocratic, which meaning that God was in control and leading, not democratic. Democratic means populism. It means popular vote. It's like whoever gets the most votes, those are the ones that win. That's not how it works in the church, because if that's the case, (laughs) there's a lot of things that would never happen because there would never be agreement, and the church would be voting in things that should have never been voted in or voted out things that should have never been voted out. So that's the difference between those things. But there was a communism, common, shared living going on. 
And the next thing is there was trust. Trust is important. Trust is important. Now, trust is earned. Has God earned your trust? Yeah. Have all people earned your trust? No. So it's amazing to me how many people will stay members of churches and they don't trust the leadership. Why would anyone do this? See, unlike your family at home, no one forces you to join a church family. You know, your family at home, you're like, oh, take me home, I'm baby. You know, and, and you're just there. But no one forces anyone to join a local church. Why does someone join a local church? Is they believe in the vision and the implementation of the vision through biblical principles, including the teaching and preaching of God's word. And they also believe that it's not optional to not be a member in a local church as a Christian. But here's the thing, when you make a decision to sign on the covenant, whatever local church, and and you join that church, wouldn't it make sense that you have trust? Now, if the trust is broken, that's a whole other thing. But if the trust is not broken, then you just got to trust that God has appointed these leaders in the church. And here's the thing that you have to realize. Those leaders are held to a higher account and will be held to account for things that you're not going to have to be held to account. So you have to trust God. So the people, now remember, these are thousands of people, sell their property and their houses, and they bring this profit and the sales, and what do they do? They lay them at the apostles' feet so that they would distribute it according to the need. So here we have the apostles, who are the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Peter is the main leader. John is there. They don't mention the names, although we do know there were 12, because in Acts 6-2 it says the 12 apostles summoned deacons to take part of the ministry so that the elders and pastors could stay focused on preaching and teaching the word. But now, consider Peter. Would you trust Peter enough to sell your house Get the money out of the bank and just put it at Peter's feet. Now, at this point, maybe, because Peter is like doing incredible things. But isn't Peter the one who denied Jesus Christ three times? I think if it was a democracy in the church, I don't know if they'd vote him in as pastor. He had a shady past. Would you lay your money at John's feet? I mean, John is like seems like this spiritually pious guy, which he is, but I mean, him and his brother were like arguing who's greater than who. How about Matthias? You know who he is, remember? He took the place of who? Judas. How did they choose him? They flipped a coin, basically. Like, oh, we got everybody else. Let's get a breathing body. Hey, you're it. Here's the point. God chooses flawed people. And we all have a shady past. But if you're comfortable enough to sit under the preaching and teaching of that pastor and those leaders, then you should be comfortable enough to give equally sacrificing as everyone else. And if you don't, then, as the comedian goes, check your heart. Why is that? Something's not right, right? I mean, maybe it has to do with past experiences, and that makes sense. 
But at some point, you got to go, I trust Jesus, right? Because everyone else is going to let you down, maybe, but he's never going to let you down. Does that make sense? That's what's going on in this church. And then last is teaching. This is in Acts chapter 2. So I've been in Acts chapter 4, but in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. So what were they devoting themselves to? Were they devoting themselves to the apostles? Now, obviously, we know they did love the apostles, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what were they teaching in the early church? Well, obviously, they were teaching the Torah, right? They're teaching the Old Testament. And then, over time, they started teaching the actual apostles' teaching, which is the New Testament, but it wasn't all written down. They were teaching the gospel. And then over time, they would start teaching the letters of Paul, because Paul would send the letters. So they were teaching the Old Testament along with the New Testament. The apostles' teaching is what we're doing today, teaching the apostles' teaching. Here's how I look at it. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. We shouldn't have to change anything. It's God's Word, and it's canonized in the Bible. So we have an incredible resource that God has given us, which is God's Word. Now, so let's review the five qualities. Unity, power, sacrifice, trust, teaching. Now, do you see these things in your church? Unity, power, sacrifice, trust, teaching. Do you see them in your life? Because it all boils down to one word, koinonia. And it literally means common. Has anyone heard that word before? Sometimes it's translated as fellowship or communion, but we do see the word used in this very passage today. It says, all things were common. Koinos, that's the root. All things were common property. And by the way, the Greek language that was used to write the New Testament was called Koine Greek. It was the common Greek. But it's also translated as fellowship in 242 that I just read. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the koinonia, the fellowship, the common gathering, the believers of one heart and soul, the ones that are committed to Jesus Christ, to each other, and to the vision of that church. So they were devoted first to the biblical teaching and then to the fellowship, to the partners. That's the formula for success. God first, others second. If you do it opposite, you have chaos. You have disunity. You're rowing in the wrong direction. God has to be first in your family. God has to be first in your marriage. God has to be first in your church. That's how it is. If it's not, switch it. Nothing else should be first. Then others, okay? So find yourself in the story I want you to rate your koinonia factor, okay? And what we're going to do is I'm going to go through each one, and there's going to be a scale, one being worst, 10 being best, and I want you to just put a mark or a circle where you are currently, where you think you are. This first go-around is for this church, or if you're not a part of this church, if you belong to another church, that one. And then you can go back and do it with your family, your marriage, and those kind of things. So we're talking about first unity. 
Are you of one mind and one heart with your church? So remember, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And then there's a scale. One being worse, ten being worse. So just mark where you are as far as one mind and one heart with your church in unity. And then when we're going to come back in a minute, I want you to mark where you'd like to be. Okay? But let's first go through it where you think you are. And then power. Are you relying on God's power and grace, sharing your testimony of Jesus? Remember, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. So rate your koinonia factor with regards to power, okay? Are you relying on God's power and grace, and are you sharing your testimony? Next, sacrifice. Are you sacrificing what God has given you for the benefit of your church? Remember in verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Where are you on the sacrifice, the equal sacrifice factors? Never equal amounts. It's equal sacrifice. One to ten. Trust. Do you trust the leadership God has placed in your church? Remember, they laid all the resources at the apostles' feet and they would distribute it as each had need. So where are you in the trust koinonia factor? And then teaching. Are you devoted to biblical teaching? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Mark where you are currently. And when you're done with that, go and put a mark where you'd like to be by the end of the year or by next month. But put a mark where you'd like to be. And then you're going to pray and you're going to ask the Lord to work in your life in these things. Because that's the only way this church will grow is if we all are on the same page. We're all rowing equally, sacrificing those things. And then later, you can go back and do it with your marriage. Where am I in unity and power in sacrifice those things in my marriage? Where do I want to be? Then your family. Okay, so do that. And I promise you, if you take this serious to heart, when everyone's on board, there's no stopping us. You know, this heard the thing, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Well, God is strong, but he's just waiting for everybody else to get on board. It's like the Israelites. God had the land. They just didn't believe him. And they all died away in the desert until the next generation. Let's not do that. Okay, we don't have time for that. We want to do it in this generation, right? Because too many people are dying and go to hell without Jesus. And we need to preach the gospel. And we need to share a testimony. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, giving us 2020 vision this year, Lord, as we start and begin this. There's nothing more important than putting God first in every aspect of our life, that we have unity, that we have power, that we have the same equal sacrifice, that we trust you and trust the leaders that God has appointed in our church, in our family, in our marriage. These things are what will be planting seeds, watering so that you will cause us to grow. Lord, I pray that we would double in partnership this year, and I pray others will pray along with me. And I know this church is already praying for growth and for land, and I pray that we will continue to pray for those things 
as we go on to the next few messages about salvations, things like this, but it all begins with unity of one heart and one mind in believing you and trusting you even above our own feelings and our own thoughts and putting you first. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com. Amazing.